Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer here at Goop and co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. My guest today is the extremely compelling Valerie Jarrett. I'm excited for you guys to hear from her. But first, I wanted to say a quick thanks to Keds, our podcast sponsor for the day. My ideal event attire involves a pair of sneakers, so I really appreciated the wall of Keds shoes at our last wellness summit in Goop Health. As guests walked in the door, they got hooked up with a pair of classic white Keds. It was cool to be able to partner with a brand that has been designing for women for so long. Keds made the first woman's sneaker in 1916, and today they pride themselves on being a brand that makes sneakers for women by women. The company is a whopping 88% female, and their leadership team is all women. To learn more about Keds, check out keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And if you're shopping on the Keds site, use code GOOP20 for 20% off full-priced items. That's GOOP20. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, Send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Valerie Jarrett has arguably one of the most fascinating views of the Obama years. In the 90s, Valerie became a trusted personal advisor and family confidant to the family. She joined the White House team in 2009 and became the longest-serving senior advisor to President Obama. Valerie oversaw the offices of public engagement and intergovernmental affairs and she chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls. Currently, she's a senior advisor to the Obama Foundation and Intention, and a senior distinguished fellow at the University of Chicago Law School. I loved getting to ask Valerie about her past, specifically her relationship with her own parents and her daughter, what it was like to do all that she's done as a single mom, and the way that she's gone about pushing our civil rights forward. I was craving the straight and narrow path that I had arbitrarily created for myself without really any experience to base it upon. It's just what I thought should make me happy. And I was just doing that. And it turned out that that was kind of the path of least resistance until I hit a wall. And when I swerved and I took a cut and pay and I lost that fancy office and I moved into a cubicle facing the alley, that's when the adventure became real. Let's get right to Valerie. 
So I am never nervous when I do this. I'm actually nervous speaking no, to you. Don't yes. be nervous. No. We're going to have a good time. I've been <laughs> looking sh- forward to this. I'm sure we will have a good time. It is a tremendous honor. I am incredibly grateful for all that you have done for us as a country and for women everywhere. Most people, or maybe not most, but many people I know, I'm still in mourning for your work in the presidency. In fact, I cried a lot reading your book. Did you? I did. I hope it touched you in a good way. It touched me in a wonderful way. Revisiting everything that you guys managed to accomplish was incredible. Like there's that passage at the end when President Obama is sort of recounting all of the things that you guys did from Cuba to Osama bin Laden to the Affordable Care Act, Lily Ledbetter. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And as we see, when there is not functioning government, nothing gets done. So I just, I had to thank you. Well, I appreciate that. It was a challenging but incredibly rewarding eight years. Yeah. No, I can only imagine what every day must have felt like. I also, it's funny, there are so many parts of your story that resonate with me. My dad's also a doctor. I feel like there's a familiarity in your mother and her relationship (laughs) with you. Yes. Daughters Um, and their mothers. (laughs) Yeah. And I loved and loved your dad and the fact that he... The, the single, being a single mother, when he said to you that he would never disappoint your daughter, Laura. And, and he didn't. My yeah. goodness, he took her to school and picked her up every day from preschool until she graduated from high school. It's incredible. It, I was so lucky to have both of my parents a mile away because it's challenging being a single mom under any circumstances. But I had this incredible safety net of support that so many moms actually don't have. Yeah. She even wrote her, wrote her college essay on their trips back and forth to school, which was magical. And talking about crying, he sweat when he read her essay. <laughs> it, you know, it, he was thinking about how much it meant to him, but he, I don't think, fully appreciated just how much she meant, he meant to her. Yeah, no, and I love that even beyond just sort of serving the role of being the chauffeur, chauffeur, I don't know how to say that word. Chauffeur. Chauffeur. <laughs> that he would arrive an hour or two early so that he would be first in line. Isn't that amazing? Now, my father was very punctual, and for him, being late is like, arriving on time. So he arrived everywhere early, but that he would sit outside of that school for an hour because you queue up and he wanted to be the first one in line so that he was the first thing that she saw when she came outside of the school. It was just, but now it was a tough act for my mom and me to follow because when we picked her up, (laughs) I can't say that we got there an hour ahead of time. We'd be like three blocks back, but she knew that that's what she could expect from us and she knew what she could expect from him. Um, and that whole, I don't know if it was your mom or your dad who felt that way. I guess it was your dad about punctuality that like you bring a book. That's how my mom is. Yeah. Yeah. If you get there early, bring a book. But he really looked at punctuality as respect to Mm -hmm. the person with whom you're meeting. And if you're late, you're wasting their time. Yeah. And he kind of drilled that into me at an early age. And so I'm pretty punctual too. Yeah. Likewise, my parents were famous in our, in my hometown for, being early to parties. And I was, I could never explain. I'm like, you, that's rude. You can't yeah, they're be They're not early. ready for you. Yeah. Yeah. My parents <laughs> showed up once a whole day early now, to a black tie party. That was awkward. <laughs> they had to come back the next day. I hope they wore the same outfit. I'm sure they did. <laughs> I wanted to read to you a passage from early in the book about your mom that I thought was really beautiful. 
You wrote, I thought my mom lacked confidence in me. It wasn't until I was much older that I began to appreciate that she was just afraid of disappointment for me and for her. She believed in me, but she also felt it was her duty to toughen me up, force realism on me, and protect me against life's heartaches by always reminding me just how horribly things can go wrong. And I I love that because I think it's so common, I think, for all mothers. It's this anticipatory protection that's yes, not always because you know but, that life can go awry through no fault of your own, and you want your children to be able to be resilient. And part of that, in my mother's mind, was like, let me prepare you for the worst. That way, if it happens, you've already planned for what you're going to do next. Whereas I am a glass three-fourths full person, so I'm like, okay, well, if it doesn't work out, then I'll think of something else. And yeah. it doesn't really bother me as much, probably because she prepared me for the worst. And do so, you think so, or do you think she like? she you would have figured it out anyway I don't know that I would have I think my parents were the perfect combination my father was much more like me in terms of like everything will work out life is going to be your oyster but you do have to work really hard they both kind of instilled that in me Mm -hmm. and my mom was just like things could just go really really wrong here Mm -hmm. and I thought you think they will go wrong, and then therefore there must be something wrong with me. And it wasn't that at all. It's that the world can go wrong mm-hmm. despite your best efforts. So when did you figure that out? Because that seems important. That About just... three days ago. No. <laughs> <laughs> it took me a while. It took me a while. It took us really having some conversations in adulthood where I would say, you know, I really thought you, you lacked faith in me. She said, oh, goodness, no. I knew how talented you were. I just know a lot of talented people who bad things happen to. Yeah. So did you feel so performative and so excellent in part just to reassure her? I don't know that I felt excellent, but I did feel like I was giving it my best. And it's interesting because I can remember as a child, it's funny the things that stick with you. If I, let's say I got a B and I had really worked hard, my parents were like, I am so glad you worked as hard as you could. Mm-hmm. If I got an A plus and I kind of phoned it in, mm-hmm. well, that wasn't good enough. The mm. point is effort, not the results, because you can't always control the results. You can control yeah. the effort. Totally. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, I was talking to a therapist about my own kids and wanting to protect that that mm-hmm. projection of protection. And How old are your kids? I have uh, two boys, one who's turning six later this month and uh, two and a half, someone, one who's almost three. And the six-year-old is so empathic, and I just I want to just protect him from yeah. what's coming. He yeah. says he's such a sponge, and I think it's total projection. He will survive and hopefully keep all those soft soft parts intact. But yeah, the this therapist essentially was saying that by like trying that my job when he came home, even with an A plus was just, how do you feel about that? But not the response of like, good job. Good job. Right. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel? Do you, how do you feel you did Yeah. by your own measure as opposed to some other third party measure that you really can't control? No, it's true. And it's interesting though, because parents have such an incredible influence. And as a parent myself, I know when my daughter was growing up, I totally stressed out. Like, And I felt inadequate and I felt like everything's so hard and I've got all these balls juggling and I was trying to be superwoman. Yeah. And I thought, well, I got to be a perfect wife and a perfect mom and a perfect lawyer. And I never shared when Laura was very young with anybody, not even honestly myself, how hard it was. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking like if there must be something wrong with me that it's so hard. And what I try to tell young parents, Mm -hmm. particularly, it's just hard. 
And it has nothing to do with your competency. It has to do with the fact that so much of our world is not set up so that working families can thrive. Yeah. And so as I grew older in life and was in a position to help set and drive policy, it was really with those working families in mind, like, what can we do to make it easier for them? Because I had a career where I was nine months pregnant and I wouldn't tell anybody that, you know, anything about what was happening below my neck. And I just tried to pretend myself it wasn't going on as I grew bigger and bigger and bigger. And I can remember one, oh my gosh, I was sitting in a conference room trying to close a real estate deal at two in the morning and my legs were all swollen, my ankles were swollen. And I kept getting up and I'd say, I'm going to the Xerox machine or I'm going to check voicemail or I'm going to the vending machine. Does anybody want anything? And I wasn't going to any of those places. I was going to the bathroom. Of course. Because that's what you do when you're nine months <laughs> pregnant. But why, what was it in me that I couldn't say that to the 10 men sitting around the table? Right? Yeah. I didn't feel empowered to do that. And so I got in this habit of pretending. Mm-hmm. That I, you know, I've got it all together. And it wasn't until I dropped a whole bunch of balls that my mom said to me, why don't you ask for help? And she was really kind of the master of the mighty juggle, as I call it. But I didn't see it through her lens. Like she was teaching preschool, so she got off work at three o'clock. And my father walked in the door at five o'clock every day like clockwork. And so it was, in a sense, easier for her than it was for me. But I held her up as like this perfect person who did everything. We used to joke that my dad, who would sit in his chair when he came home from work while she would go and cook dinner, that if she didn't come home, like you'd find him three weeks later still sitting in that chair (laughs) waiting for Barbara to walk in the door and cook him dinner. And so I thought, well, I'm supposed to be that person who I get home at 730 or 8 o'clock and I got to go cook dinner and then I got to nonsense. And then I would then like at 2 in the morning, what would I be doing? I'd be making baby food from scratch. Yeah. Why? Why did I feel like a jar wouldn't be okay and the Laura would be just perfectly healthy? But why? Why? What was it? Superhuman. Superhuman yeah. and prided myself on perfection. And there's a passage in the book and it's a little thing, but I remember it so clearly. Like I was trying to walk in the garage door of my apartment building and I had Laura on mm. one hip and I had two grocery bags and I kept sticking my key in the door and it kept slipping out and the door would close. And a guy comes up behind me, and he's like, could I open the door for you? And I'm like, no, no, I got this. I've got this. And I was so, I felt so vulnerable. Yeah. That if I didn't do it myself, that I somehow was weak. Nonsense. Yeah. It's just nonsense. And I see it now. And so part of why I wanted to share my story about when I was young and foolish is so other working moms in particular, but working families in general, will just not be so hard on themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's incredible because you, you're essentially in this conversation trying to bust the myth of the superwoman, but at the same time as a single mom and a woman of color, look at what you accomplished, essentially the right hand of the leader of the free world with oh, a daughter who I'm went through <laughs> Harvard <laughs> Law School. And no, I mean, I'm sure you wrote this book on a free afternoon in January. <laughs> Where, and I'm a very competent and productive person, mm-hmm. very performative, and I have two kids and I have a, a present husband, but how do you do it? Like how, where did you find the strength? Where did you find the energy? Well, I'd say a few things. I found it exhausting when I was in a job that was not satisfying. Right. And as I open my book, I'm sitting in my beautiful office on the 79th floor with a gorgeous view and a high rise in Chicago, looking at Lake Michigan. I love the water. 
And I just would turn my back from the door and close the door and break the cardinal rule in the office, which is no crying at work. Mm -hmm. And I would sit there and I would just cry. And I was like, this must be somebody else's life. I could not be meant to be this miserable. And I wasn't even good at my job. I mean, I was mediocre at that. My marriage was crumbling around me. The only really good thing I felt I had done was had this perfect daughter. And I thought to myself, she'll never be proud of me if I keep this path going. She Mm -hmm. just will not. And I wanted her to look up to me. I wanted to be the positive influence in her life that my mom and my dad had been in mine. And I took this leap of faith and I joined city government. And when you're doing something you love, and I loved service, I loved the thought that I was taking this education and whatever skills I had learned practicing law and helping the city that I had spent most of my life in growing up. And when you're doing something you really care about and you're in an environment where your boss recognizes that you're a single mom and I'm I mean, Mayor Daley um, and Dan Levin, when I went to the private sector, and obviously Barack Obama, they knew that my first priority over everything was Laura. Mm -hmm. And they gave me the flexibility to be a mom. I had a great mentor when I worked for Mayor Washington, a woman. And she would stop at my home so we could work together there so I could put Laura to bed. And Mm -hmm. I would start making her dinner, and then we'd work after Laura went to bed. So I had a lot going for me, I guess is the point I was making in not to mention these parents who were less than a mile away, and a sitter who started working with us when Laura was three months old and stayed until after she went away to college. Mm. And I could set my watch, and I would, you know, you know, you have mornings where you've got like backed up meetings, and I'm thinking, if she doesn't walk in the door at eight o'clock, it's going to cascade. And right. every morning at a minute to eight, she walked in that door. And the peace of mind that gives you, even when it's really, really hard, is enormous. Yeah. So a job I loved a support system, amazing friends. I'm an only child, so my family of siblings are the people I chose. Makes it doable, but I'm not going to say it isn't hard. And part of what I try to tell young people is, look, it may not pay off (laughs) tomorrow. You may not get a promotion three days on the job the way some of these young millennials want. You might have to actually (laughs) be there for a bit. But over the long haul, as you add up all the chapters of your life and you look back, I think it makes sense. For me, it makes sense. And I feel like... Whatever I was doing once I left the job I didn't enjoy, I gave it my all, and I had a support system that let me do both. But it doesn't mean it wasn't hard. It is hard. It is hard. No, I, I agree. It's hard for everyone, regardless of how many resources you have. And I also think it's a testament to what makes family. And, you know, similarly, I have a woman in my life, Vicki, who I talk about all the time. My life, Our lives would not function without her. She's another parent and sort of godparent and yes. grandmother and you need all hands on deck yeah and any anyone can sort of play that father role you know i think we are so confined by what we believe it's supposed to look like that we sometimes sort of miss the gifts around us who are there to make it possible that's exactly right and i will tell you i have a great circle of friends and i would be like everybody it takes a village to raise a child it really yeah. does and on days, once I overcame this sense of being superwoman and I started sharing more openly with myself and my friends, then I discovered, oh my gosh, it's hard for them too. Mm-hmm. And comparing myself to perfection was no longer the reality because we were all beginning to talk about our challenges. And there is a sense of like, okay, well, if it's not just, it's not just, I'm not the only one who's having a hard time. You're having a hard time too. And what do you do to solve the problem? And, and then just sharing with one another was really, um, contributed to the resilience and the ability to say, okay. Yeah. 
Everybody's struggling. Yeah, I feel like women, my mom always had a women's group. She still has a women's group and they see each other. It's been 40 years. And I feel like that doesn't happen enough in today's society. Like we, we, we need that. We need those convenings. And, and over the long arc of your life, I mean, I have a best friend here in Los Angeles who I can't wait to see tonight. She was my best friend since college. Yeah. And I have a best friend from law school and I have friends that I've made since I've been an adult. And one of the things that I've always done to cope is I try to make space and you have to be intentional about it because the days could just get eaten up with, you know, chores and work, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But I would have brunch when I lived in Chicago every Saturday with a circle of friends. And then when we moved to D.C., we moved it to Sunday. And there's something so grounding about being with people who know you from back in the day. Yeah. And who wish you well. And I know a lot of people who have friends that are kind of those fair weather friends or nice nasty, I used to call them. Where <laughs> they're not rooting for you, right? Yeah. No. And when I grew old enough to recognize those signs, I let those folks go. And I really only surround myself with goodness. And I just think I have the I have the most wonderful people who I've chosen to be my family from my extended family on out. And that helps too. We'll come back to Valerie in just a second. In my past life, working in magazines in New York City, I wore heels all the time but I somehow shed that habit when I moved to Los Angeles several years ago. And now I'm all about wearing sneakers as many days of the week as possible. Sneakers with jeans, sneakers with dresses, sneakers with skirts, you get the picture. I love a classic white sneaker, and Keds makes arguably one of the most iconic versions at a price point I also appreciate. What I didn't know about their OG women's sneaker, called the Champion, is that Keds first launched it in 1916, And at the time, women's sneakers didn't yet exist. Since then, Keds has of course continued to create shoes for women. And behind their shoes, there's more women. Keds is 88% female, and their leadership team is comprised entirely of women. This is pretty similar to our team makeup at Goop. Well, we have one amazing guy on our executive team. He's pretty great, and also very comfortable being in his feminine. If you want to learn more about how Keds is championing women, just head to keds.com slash our story. That's keds.com slash our story. And if you're planning to do some shopping while you're on the Keds site, plug in code GOOP20 at checkout. That's good for 20% off full-priced items. Again, that's code GOOP20. One of the lead producers of our InGoop Health Summits first told us about the brand Buffy. She was an early fan of their debut comforter, The Cloud, which is ridiculously soft and super comfortable, which helps explain why the sleep station we created with Buffy at our last InGoop Health in New York was one of the most popular spots at Summit. Buffy just launched a new comforter, which they've named The Breeze. It's also extremely comfortable and really breathable. The Breeze is a plant-based comforter made entirely from eucalyptus fiber. It's designed to regulate temperature so that you stay comfortable and just cool enough all night. If you want to try out the Breeze Comforter, Buffy offers a free trial for 30 nights. If you don't love it, you can return it at no cost. And you can take $20 off your Buffy Comforter when you visit Buffy.co and enter code GOOP20. That's Buffy.co and enter promo code GOOP20. Back to my chat with Valerie Jarrett. 
So I know you haven't throughout your career always been able to surround yourself with goodness. I can only imagine what you pushed through. I loved this. I think it's such incredible advice from Pastor Rick. Oh, yes. Valerie, an essential quality of leadership is being able to absorb pain. So can you talk a little bit about that? It was such wise advice. And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I think, first of all, one of the advantages of public service is if you do it right, Mm -hmm. is that your mindset is that it's not about you, it's about the people you're there to serve. Mm -hmm. And so that helps because you are, in a sense, a vessel when attacks come your way, and and oftentimes it's nothing to do with you. And I used to actually say to my team when we were in the White House and the people would be demonstrating out in front of the White House, I would say, you know, they should push open the door. It's actually open. Mm. They can come in and we would talk to them. And I learned that working in local government in Chicago where your constituents are proximate. You see them in the grocery store when you don't have on any makeup and your hair is pulled back. You see them <laughs> when you go in for parent-teacher conference. They, they share their views with everybody in your family, and they say, go back and tell Valerie X. And so you get used to being in, in the limelight, but I don't mean the limelight like the spotlight. I mean like on. You're used to being on 24-7. And you have to get your head around the fact that you are there to serve and that even if what they say is unpleasant, it's your job to hear it mm-hmm. and to think about it. And maybe just because they say it in a loud voice, that doesn't mean it isn't true. And But the key, and I think the message he was trying to send to me with that absorption of pain is you have to do it in a way that you don't become numb. Mm. So you can't turn off your emotions, but you also can't let it eat you away. And I think getting that balance right is hard and it takes work. And I remember, my goodness, the first time in my local newspaper in Chicago, there was a cartoon about me. Now, you never want a cartoon about you. Yeah, that's no, just like, seriously. by definition, that's not good, right? Yeah. And I was so self-conscious about it. And I I remember I went in and I said to Mayor Daly, look at this article and the cartoon. And, and he's like, well, if you disagree, go to the editorial board and talk to them about it. Mm-hmm. You don't have to sit there and take that. He said, they talk about me every day in the front page of the paper. And it was the first time I realized, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I'm in here complaining to him. <laughs> he deals with this all the time. And once he empowered me to say, you can do something about it. You don't have to just take it. That helped. Because then you feel like, okay, well, I can fight back at least. Mm -hmm. And so, and then some of it is just experience. And recognizing that just because you have a vision for where you want to move people and you think it's better for them, there are a lot of people who have healthy skepticism about government. And, you know, government is here to help you. It's not necessarily a, a welcoming comment. And you have to earn people's trust. Yeah. And I think that's probably was the most helpful is to recognize, okay, I can't just expect everybody to fall in love with me on day one. I have to earn it. Mm-hmm. And in so doing, I need to work at it hard. Yeah. And then if they still don't like me, well, you know what? All right. That's a different story. Yeah. No, I think that being the vessel and then that that sort of higher purpose, I think you write about it as being, you know, finding your true north. Yes. Saying committed to true north, not perfection, but simply the greater good and never turn from its coordinates. I love that because I would imagine that that's sort of the the tether, right? Like that keeps you going despite what's probably a tremendous amount of turbulence on all sides. There's always swirl. And sometimes we would joke and say, well, we must have it just right because everybody's a little annoyed with us. And so you've struck that middle. But you can't, if you, succumb, then you've lost your focus Mm -hmm. and you're not doing your job. 
And right. I think that's how I put it in my head. So I was like, okay, if I get absorbed in the 24-hour news cycle and it's about something I don't control and I've worked myself up into a tizzy, am I, am I moving forward what I think needs to be done to do my job and, yeah. to, and to serve? And so you play these, I don't know, it's not really games. It's really you talk to yourself quite honestly and say, this isn't about you. Mm-hmm. It's about what you can do. And don't let anything get in the way of that. Certainly not your own personal feelings. Right. And I loved that sort of when you were talking about marriage equality, but the, I think you asked yourself, why am I playing shuttle diplomacy where I'm going back and forth between the evangelical Christians and the LBGTQA activists and let's make everyone confront each other in the same room. And that doesn't happen today as much as it should. Right. And I'm really worried to tell you the truth that because we're all defining our community and our devices that are in our hand, it's easy to stay in your comfort zone. It's Mm -hmm. easy to not have uncomfortable conversations and to just be in your own echo chamber and lap up all the things that make you feel good. And I don't think that's healthy. I think young people need to be curious, intellectually curious, socially curious, talk to people who have different views. It's how you grow and mature and develop your own ideas, not just by hearing, mm-hmm. uh, parroting back at you, what you begin by thinking. And I, I'm worried about, we're going to lose that skill set. Yeah. And in a country that's as big and as diverse as ours with opinions across the spectrum, it makes it difficult for those who are representing us to know what to do if we won't let them listen and we won't let the compromise is a dirty word and we let perfect, our version of perfect, be the mm-hmm. enemy of the good. Yeah. And so I think we have to change that paradigm. No, I agree. I feel like just thinking about politics and sort of we, we feels like we've painted ourselves into a corner where nobody is paying any attention to the actual issues. They're just attaching themselves to parties. And so people don't even know really what their party stands for or what's important to them. Yes. And And how those things ladder up. And they talk at each other rather than listen to each other. And listening is a really useful tool. I've learned a lot by listening. And if people tune out, then how do they grow and how do they develop? And, and we just will become increasingly polarized as a society, and that's not good either. I want to know what you think the antidote is. Just growing up in Montana, it was always interesting to me because it's a very issue-focused state. You know, mm-hmm. it's very small. I mean, it's massive, but it has a tiny population. Right. With We probably have should not have two senators because I don't even think we have a million people. But the... We're actually quite purple because Mm -hmm. we have a Democrat for a governor, et cetera, and John Tester in the Senate. But Montanans are very focused on their issues in a way that can cut through. Mm -hmm. I think they're an interesting model. Mm -hmm. I wish, um, but we're a flyover state. So I don't think, you know, typically I know President Obama came to Montana and it was a big deal, but typically nobody goes to Montana. But we should all go to Montana. It's funny you'd mention that about a flyover state because we went to Idaho during Mm -hmm. the primary on a Saturday morning and there were like 5,000 people who showed up and the president of the university said to then Senator Obama, you know, usually when Democrats campaign in Idaho, they just wave from an airplane. And Mm -hmm. President Obama's attitude was, no, I need to be accountable to every American. And I can't draw, once you're president, you can't just think that your job is to in, is to play to your base. You have to play to the entire country, I think, if you're going to do it right. And so I think the, you said, you know, what do we do about this? I think 
we need, first of all, we need more people to vote and get engaged in the civic process. I was so disappointed in the last presidential election that 43% of our country didn't even vote. It's like, come on, you guys. There are consequences. But I guess the silver lining and where we are right now is that there is a level of activism that's been heightened, beginning with the Women's March the day after yeah. the inauguration and the demonstrations in Chicago and all over the country about the Muslim ban and the enormous pushback to the separation of families and the thought of repealing the Affordable Care Act and the thought of defunding Planned Parenthood. And, and so I'm encouraged by that. That's what gives me reason to be hopeful is that people's voices are being heard and they're appreciating the power of their own voices and using them. Yeah. Are you, do you feel hopeful for 2020? I do. I do. I think that the democratic field has an embarrassment of riches right now. I and know. I think that's good. I, because look, it's a, I've been through two presidential elections up close. It's a marathon. President Obama used to say, you have to be prepared to lift up your hood and let people kick your tires. And that takes time. So I think it's early in the primary process. At this point in, in his primary back in 2007, I think he was down by 20 points. <laughs> so a lot can happen in a year. Yeah. And I look forward to seeing that. The advice I have given to several of the candidates with whom I've spoken is, look, have an affirmative message, an authentic message about you. What do you stand for? What do you care about? And why should we trust you to execute that strategy? And don't beat up your your colleagues in the primary so much that whoever's the nominee mm -hmm. goes in weakened because yeah. we need to be as strong as possible going into the general election because that's the, that's the ball game that's the most important. And then the other thing I think I notice is that there is a difference between campaigning and governing. And yeah. campaigning you do, you try to go after your base and broaden it. But when you govern, you do have to be the president for the entire country or the mayor for the entire city or the legislator for the entire state, governor for the entire state. And I think that we are dangerously tripping into an environment where people don't think that way. Yeah. And they play to their base. And that's not the job. No, it's not, as we've seen. Is there anyone in within the party, the Democratic Party, that you love, whether they're running or not? Like, do you feel like there are any shiny examples, local government, city government? There are, and I am very hesitant to name anybody. It's like your children. <laughs> well, who's your favorite kid? You don't want to say that. I just, I, well, and the other thing I would say about the Democratic Party is that I think we have a big tent. And so we have room for people who are more moderate, and we also have room for progressives. And all, everybody should be welcome in the Democratic Party. I think it's what distinguishes us, frankly, mm -hmm. from the Republican Party that's becoming increasingly homogeneous. So I, I don't want to put any names out there, but I will say that I think that there is a robust field already, and we know there are probably, by the time we finish this interview, there might be 10 more people in the race. I know. <laughs> It's true. It's amazing. It is very exciting. And I feel like there are a lot of young faces as well. There are young faces that are running for president. And there are young faces who ran in the midterm elections. And the fact that we now have more women and people of color in Congress mm -hmm. than ever before, I think is a good sign. No, I agree. I thought the midterms were incredibly reassuring. And I can't say I was surprised. But, but you never know. I mean, I, I was surprised yeah. in 2016. And, but you yeah. can't take it for granted. And you have to realize that. There are a lot of people who are shunning institutions of all kind and don't, under, don't understand really the power of government to be a force for good. And part of why Mrs. Obama and I started this not-for-profit called When We All Vote is to try to change the culture around voting. Yeah. And even in the midterms, as great as they were, 
we went from young people voting 20 percent of young people voting all the way to 30 70 percent still didn't vote and we have to change that yeah there's a climate scientist or climate journalist that we interviewed years ago and he this quote has always stuck with me but he said you know when people say i'm not that interested in politics and this was before 2016 but when i'm not I'm not that interested in politics. My response is always, well, politics is sure interested in you. Yes, it is. <laughs> and if you don't get interested, let me tell you who will. The special interest groups who have a ton of cash that they are willing to invest in either maintaining the status quo, which mm-hmm. isn't necessarily good for you, or rolling back progress that was good for you. I mean, if you look at what's happening now in just the Environmental Protection Agency. I know. Just you know, wiping away these executive orders that President Obama put in place to protect our environment. And you can believe that the coal industry and many other industries are spending a lot of money to ensure that that happens. And the only way we can combat that is that if you and I and a bunch of other people say, no, that's not what we want the direction of our country to be. And people have to care about the issues. And they also have to appreciate that sometimes people will say to me, well, my vote doesn't count. So, you know, I'm busy that day or whatever. But then if you look at the Record. I mean, like Hillary Clinton lost by fewer than 100,000 votes in three states. Country this size, that's not a lot of votes. And you can, I remember President Obama, you could look by district by district and see just, you know, a few people could turn a district. So every vote does actually matter. Obviously, on a city and local level, it matters tremendously, and it matters which justices are put into those positions. It's who's on your school board, yeah. Right? Who's on your city council approving your real your real estate taxes? And I mean, there there's a lot at stake here. And I had a friend who used to say, you know, that you can see a lot about a person's character and values by their budget. Mm-hmm. It shows up what their priorities are. Mm-hmm. And if you don't like the way your tax dollars are being spent you can do something about it. You can put somebody in there who will prioritize what you value. We'll come back to Valerie in just a second. The European Wax Center is synonymous with seamless waxing. And now we're into them for a campaign that empowers women, as well as men, to use their purchasing power for good. It's called Axe the Pink Tax, The pink tax is the extra amount that the average woman is charged daily for basic goods and services. A few years ago, the New York City Department of Consumer Affairs did a study on gender pricing in the city. That report is called, From Cradle to Cane, The Cost of Being a Female Consumer. And the results seemed profound. They looked at almost 800 products across five industries, 24 stores, and 91 brands. Overall, they found that women's products cost 7% more than similar products for men. Overall, they found that women's products cost 7% more than similar products for men. Of all the industries they looked at, personal care products seemed to carry the greatest discrepancy. On average, they found that personal care products for women cost 13% more than personal care products for men, which isn't acceptable. As women, we're arguably the most powerful consumers, and we deserve a lot better. Other groups have studied the notion of the pink tax, and I think an important first step in overturning it is exploring potential gender-based pricing differences and talking about it. And I love that the European Wax Center is empowering us to do just that. You can learn more about the campaign at axthepinktax.com. Back to my chat with Valerie Jarrett. To go back to sort of your life, you say 
it took me quite a while to realize that my failed marriage didn't make me a failure. Accomplished women are often asked, can you have it all? If you think having it all means having everything you want all of the time and doing it all yourself, the answer is no. Is there anything looking back on your life that you would have done differently? Or, I mean... Well, see, this is the interesting thing. Obviously, my marriage didn't work out, but marrying the person who on paper I thought was perfect and who Mm -hmm. I thought would make me whole led me to appreciate that there's nothing lonelier than being in a bad marriage. Mm. Whereas I had thought being single was lonely. Oh my gosh, there's just no comparison between the two. So not only did I learn that important lesson being married to my husband, but I also had my daughter. Right. And I have no regrets about that. That's the best thing that's ever happened to me. And so I think the way I look at it is not so much in terms of regrets, but did I did I learn from mistakes I made or decisions I made? Did they help me grow and become a better person? And when you look at all of the chapters, do they add up to like Mm -hmm. a whole life? Was I well loved? Did I love? Did I Mm. appreciate what was important in life? Did I get passionate about both people and issues? And and if you had asked me 30 years ago, would I be a senior advisor to a president of the United States, I'd say, well, that's ridiculous. Of course not. (laughs) But when I look back and I see all of the different steps that I took that prepared me for that job, then I say, oh, yeah, it makes perfectly good sense. Yeah. (laughs) And so I think that's, I mean, the big part of the message of my book is I was craving the straight and narrow path that I had arbitrarily created for myself without really any experience to base it upon. It's just what I thought should make me happy. And I was just doing that. And it turned out that that was kind of the path of least resistance until I hit a wall. And when I swerved and I took a cut and pay and I lost that fancy office and I moved into a cubicle facing the alley, that's when the adventure became real. And that's when I found my voice and it's where I learned to advocate for other people and it changed my life. But what if I had just stayed in that kind of safe office And I know so many people who have choices. And let's face it, if you are working on an assembly line and you've got a double shift just to make ends meet, you don't have choices. Mm -hmm. But if you do have a choice, then take the step towards adventure. Mm. And I think that's what I really am proud that I did. And I think my dad leaving America to find an opportunity that he couldn't find here in a small city in Shiraz, Iran, kind of empowered me in a sense to say you don't have to do what conventional wisdom might Mm -hmm. dictate you can take the you know the path less traveled yeah and that swerve is where the adventure is totally and And it's such an overused word but it feels like you tapped into your authentic self yes but you have to you have to be willing to trust that voice before you can actually listen to it and I think when I was young I didn't really trust it I was kind of in a fantasy world thinking about life as it should be as opposed to how it really was. And it's the advice that you didn't take to your friends, start out the way you want to end up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, don't you know so many relationships where, and I, well, it's not just women, it's women and men, where you, you present your best self and you pretend that things are not what they really are. And my mother used to say, you know, you're, you're actually not as nice as you're pretending to totally. be. <laughs> you should be honest so he knows what he's getting. <laughs> exactly. I started out trying so hard to be perfect, which I defined as accommodating. Yes. And that is a defining for so many women. 
accommodating is right. Well, thank you so much for being here. I hate to end on that note, but I hope that the people who are listening to it actually feel a sense of empowerment and that they can change their life. It's their life and they shouldn't shy away from owning it and figuring out how to be, how to make it purposeful, however you define purposeful to be. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Valerie Jarrett. I'm so grateful that she stopped by to talk during her trip to LA. If you haven't already, pick up a copy of her book, Finding My Voice. Okay, let's get to today's Ask Me Anything with GP. What's your favorite beauty product? It's very hard for me to just pick one. I think my favorite right now, I think, is our night cream because we're just kind of coming out of winter. My skin is really dry. I wear it all the time. I wear it in the day. It's so rich and and nourishing. I I think that's my favorite one at the moment. If you have a question you'd like me to answer here, send it over to Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today. As you might know, I really like feedback. If you have a chance, please rate and review the podcast here. And if you like what you're hearing, just tap subscribe and pass it along to a friend. GP will be back on the podcast on Tuesday with two special guests. We hope you'll tune in again. Thanks for listening.